0: Alrighty. Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 1. We're going to read the first eight verses. Matthew writes, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet." For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And um, there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Well, you know, when I get together, uh, when I start a study, and I spend a lot of time in prayer, and I just ask the Lord to really move on our hearts. And I really feel that as we come to these verses this morning, I I think that the Lord would have us keep in mind that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, what is crazy about that is is God doesn't just love the world. He so loves the world. You know, that word so there in John 3.16, it intensifies the statement. You know, I don't just love my wife Tina. I so love Tina. I don't just love my kids and grandkids. I so love them. And I think that there's a great sense of need. There's a great need, not only in the world, but for all of us this morning. I think that there's just a great need this morning for us to hear God's word and to allow it to wash over us and bring a change to our hearts to bring about a deeper concern and a greater love for those that are around us that don't, know, don't yet know Jesus as their savior. know, I think, you know, we need a change in our hearts that would cause us to live with a greater urgency. You know, a, a sense of urgency because we are in these last days. I think that we need to allow the word of God to edify us this morning, to build us up, but also to exhort us. And exhortation is encouragement to action. And I think that that's what we need the the word of God to do in our hearts this morning. Now, as we come to Matthew 24 and 25, you know, those two chapters comprise what's called the Olivet Discourse. Why is it called the Olivet Discourse? Because Jesus taught it from the Mount of Olives. Um, The Olivet Discourse happens to be the second longest sermon of Jesus that we have recorded for us. The the first longest sermon, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. And again, we want to keep in mind that um, Jesus is literally just a couple days away from the cross. You know, he, it's, he's just a few days away from laying down his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And uh, we also want to keep in mind that the events of Matthew 24 and 25, uh, they take place at the close of a very, very long day for Jesus. Early in the day, Jesus left Bethany, he came to the temple and he began to teach the people. And as he taught the people, you know, uh, as he begins to speak God's word, teaching them about the kingdom of God, you know, this very large crowd began to gather around Jesus in order to hear what he was teaching. You know, they wanted to hear what it is that he was saying that morning. And while he was teaching the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, they come and they interrupted his teaching to ask him a series of very controversial questions. They were trying to trap him. They were trying to get him to say something that would alienate, hopefully, at least half of the people that were following him and halt this growing popularity of Jesus. But each time they tried to trap him, each time they tried to publicly humiliate him, you know, each time, you know, effectively what they were trying to do was was turn people away from placing their faith in, in Jesus. But each time they tried it, they were embarrassingly unsuccessful. And we left our study off last week in Matthew 24 with Jesus just breaking over the city of Jerusalem. And we noted last week that Matthew 23... Did I say last week, Matthew 24? It's last week, Matthew 23. Uh, we noticed last week that this Matthew 23 was Jesus's last public address. It's the last public address that he makes. Um, he's gonna turn now from the, uh, the public and turn to his disciples. But you would think that the last public address uh, you know sermon that Jesus would would give to the people you think that it would be a, a sermon uh, regarding salvation and the need to turn to him and place their faith in him but that wasn't the case this last public sermon that Jesus gives very powerfully is a sermon of condemnation where he rebukes the religious leaders of his day you know it's just a strong message of condemnation Jesus pronounces Eight woes uh, upon the religious leaders, upon the scribes and Pharisees. Eight times he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He says, hypocrites, seven of those eight times. Jesus spoke out condemning the religious leaders, warning them of the destruction that was ahead of them if they just continued to go about the direction they were headed without repenting of their sins. He said outwardly that the religious leaders, they were like whitewashed tombs, you know, they looked great, clean, neat outside. Everything looked wonderful. They all looked put together. But inwardly, they were filled with lawlessness and rebellion to God. And we were reminded last week in the study that the Lord sees our hearts. You know, he looks at our heart Right? He sees what's going on on the inside of our lives. And in conclusion, Jesus finishes up that sermon there at the end of Matthew 23 saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You know how often I wanted to, Jesus said how often I wanted to reach out to you, how often I wanted to draw you close to protect you and and, uh, provide for you, you know, but um, you weren't willing. You know, they didn't want it. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. You know, I want to do my own thing. I want to live the life the way I want to live my life. You know, it had nothing to do. Their refusal to turn to Christ had nothing to do with facts, It had nothing to do with whether they had a need or not. You know, it had nothing to do with the evidence proving that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, and God the Son. It it has nothing to do with anything other than the will of the individual. They were not willing. You know, I I want to do this for you, but you're not willing. Their response was, yeah, you know, I don't want to submit my life to Jesus or anyone else. You know, I want to do my own thing. And Jesus says, how often I wanted to, but you were not willing. Then in verse 38, a very sad, sad verse, Matthew 23, verse 38. Jesus says, see, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall See me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is referring to the house there. And he says, it's your house. Before Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But now you've rejected me. You know, now you've rejected your Messiah. And now it's your house and it's going to be left to you desolate. And then the story continues, uh, the events continue, Matthew 24, verse 1, and then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and he, his disciples came up to show him the building of the temple, the buildings of the temple, and Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, I don't know how you see these things. You know, what I do is when I read the Bible, I try to picture in my mind what's going on. You know, and and, uh, uh, what I see is the disciples, they've heard, you know, Jesus rebuke the religious leaders, pronouncing those eight woes upon them, seven times calling them hypocrites. And in my mind, I see it. It's almost as if the disciples, as they depart the temple, right, and they make their way up to the Mount of Olives, and that's where they're headed. We're going to see that. You know, I kind of picture in my mind that the that the disciples are looking back at the temple. Matthew says that the disciples show Jesus the buildings. And the word there uh, in the original language that's translated into English, show, it means to call out to or to point to. And, and, and it's interesting because in Mark's account of, of these events, it, it indicates that the disciples were especially impressed with the size of the stones that were used for the construction of the temple. Mark declares, Mark 13:1, then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Basically, what they were saying to Jesus is, have you seen the size of these stones? You know? Have you you considered the size of these stones that were used for the construction of the temple? Because if you have, you know, you might want to reconsider what you've just said about the destruction of the temple. Okay? I mean, it's actually a very polite way. They're giving Jesus a way out. They're giving him a chance to revise or soften the prophecy that he just made in regard to the temple. Because in the disciples' mind... The destruction of the temple was completely and utterly impossible. And you have to understand the temple, which is called Herod's temple because, you know, Herod uh, rebuilt it, refurbished it. It was just this amazing, incredible structure. Everything that Herod built, he was determined to build it in a way that it would outlive the pyramids. That was the scale. That was the scope. That was the grandeur of his construction project and and of the temple in particularly. Herod's temple was one of the uh, wonders of the ancient world, Josephus tells us. Josephus tells us that it had walls that were 130 feet high. And it had incredible brass gates within the temple. One of the gates so large, it took 20 men to move it, to open it up. The whole temple was just decked out in gold. There was gold every place and marble courtyards. And uh, looking at the temple from the distance, if you were coming from a distance and come over the Mount of Olives, when you saw the temple, what it looked like is it looked like a mountain covered in snow. I mean uh, Josephus tells us that you know not only was it was it uh, gold and reflecting the sun in such a way it was just dazzling so bright you couldn't look at it but it was it was looked like a mountain of snow because it was dazzling white just the marble just white and it just it was just amazing Josephus tells us Josephus if you don't know he's a Roman historian he was Jewish worked for the Roman government to to uh, chronicle the the Jewish history but Josephus tells us that some of the stones that made up the temple and you can see these stones today if you go to Israel but some of the stones that made up the temple were 40 feet long 20 feet high and 20 feet thick weighing over 165 tons And you know, I mean, it's a wonder to us even today to just kind of try to wrap our minds around how Herod built that temple. Josephus tells us that the stones of the temple fit together so precisely that no mortar was needed for those stones. And you you were not able to even take a butter knife and slip them through uh, the, the joints of the stones. They fit together so perfectly. You know, and again, you can go to Israel today. A great place to see how the stones fit together is you go to Israel today and you, and you go to the Western Wall Tunnels and they'll take you below the uh, surface of the current ground level and you can see the Western Wall uh, in, in just these stones. Western Wall is a retaining wall and you see these stones stacked. They're huge. It's just Amazing. And so the disciples, as they're looking back at the temple and they're they're pointing at it, you know, basically they're kind of saying, but Jesus, there's no way. You might want to rethink what you're saying. Hello? I mean, there's just no way. The disciples, they were head over heels impressed with the temple, as, as most people were. But Jesus, he wasn't all that impressed with it. You know, I, I would guess maybe... Uh, you know when you come from heaven it's a little hard to be impressed with anything here on earth. But the disciples they saw the stones and not only were they impressed by the construction of the temple but they thought that it would outlive the ages. Right? I mean the temple seemed so sure. The disciples saw the stones and you know they saw them as immovable. You know they saw them as permanent. And the disciples in their mind, you know, saw the temple. They just thought it was going to last forever. And that was how they saw it. But Jesus would say to the disciples, I don't want you. And he would say this to us today. I don't want you. I don't want my disciples to think about those stones in that way. I don't want you to think, uh, you know, about the temple in that way. The destruction of this temple will be so very great. It will be complete and there won't be one stone left upon another. And what's amazing is that's exactly what happened to the temple. You know, less than 40 years later, you know, uh, way past Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, um, you know, it happened just as Jesus said. The events happened in, in 66 AD. You know, some Jews they got to the place where they were just fed up with the Roman uh, occupation. And so what they did was they attacked the Roman, a small Roman uh, garrison that was there in the city of Jerusalem. And the Romans hearing about what was happening in Jerusalem to the Roman forces there, you know, in nearby Syria, they sent a larger force to Jerusalem. And these Jewish insurgents, they defeated that larger force. And that defeat uh, actually accomplished two things. One, it made the Jewish people who wanted to be done with the Roman rule. It gave them the false idea that they could actually defeat Rome. And secondly, Rome, what it did to them is it moved them to action. You know, the Jews basically poked Rome in the eye with a stick. And and there was no way Rome was going to allow Israel to fall uh, in light, as a response or as a, a result of this uh, rebellion. Had they allowed that to happen, that would have been the end of the entire Roman Empire right then. And so Rome sent 60,000 heavily armed, highly professional soldiers to put down this rebellion. And seven years, uh, several years after Jesus's crucifixion in 70 AD, years of fighting uh, had, had passed now, and the Romans, they besiege Jerusalem. And uh, Titus, the Roman general, with the 12th, the 5th, and the 10th Roman legions, right? Uh, they go in and they uh, lay siege to Jerusalem and they assault Jerusalem. And uh, those, those Roman legions, they were very, very elite Roman troops. And Josephus tells us, that by the time the Romans actually were at this point and they break down, they break the walls of Jerusalem, they enter into the city. You know, they're they're so, I don't know, there's been so much carnage go on that now the Romans, they're just just killing everything. Anything and everything that didn't wear a Roman uniform, they killed it. And it was just a bloody, uh, you know, battle. And Titus, because of his respect for Herod's temple and what Herod did there at the temple, he told his soldiers not to destroy the temple. But at some point, what happened was one soldier, we don't know exactly what happened, different reports, but one of the most commonly reported events is that one soldier in a drunken rage, he throws a torch up onto the temple mount area and the entire temple mount, Along with the temple, it catches fire, and it just burns. And the temple, as it burns, you know, as you would expect, all the gold began to melt. And it flowed down through the cracks and all of these stones. And uh, so what did the Romans do? Well, because the Romans were not only paid by a wage with Rome or by Rome, they were also paid... Uh, part of their pay was the spoils of any city that they conquered. And so the soldiers, they just waited till these huge stones cooled. And then they began to pry them apart one by one, throwing them down one on top of another in order to get to the gold that had seeped through the cracks and has just settled in the lowest places. Incredibly It all happened just as Jesus said it would happen. Not one stone is left upon another. And to this day, you can go to Israel and you can see uh, there on the Temple Mount, there's no temple there. That's gone. Nothing of the temple is left except these huge stones that are, again, thrown down one on top of another. So what's the lesson? The lesson is this. If Jesus says it's going to happen, it's gonna happen. That's just that's the way it is. That's wisdom for you. That's wisdom for me. If Jesus says it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. What is it gonna take to wake up the church in America? That's my question. What is it gonna take? You know, you read through the gospels, and as you read through, Jesus tells us as a church to get ready, to watch, and to pray, because the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect him. And, and you can rest assured that that is the way it's going to happen. Jesus says it's going to happen. That's the way it's going to happen. Because that's, that's what he said. And we as a church, we as his followers, his disciples, we need to give attention to what Jesus says. And we need to be watching. We need to be praying. And we need to be busy about the kingdom of God, you know, ready for his return. What was true about that ancient temple is also true about the world in which we live in, right? The tendency on our part is to look at the world and think, you know what? It's just going to go on forever. It's immovable. It's permanent, right? I mean, it's going to outlive the ages, you know? Life as we know it, you know, we, we're, we tend to think it's just going to keep on going, Just, you know, one day after another, tomorrow's going to be like yesterday and it's just going to keep going that way. And like the disciples, we can look at the world and just say, yeah, there's no way. There's no way it's ever going to come to an end. I mean, that's just silly talk, right? Just as Jesus calmly revealed the future of the temple to his disciples, so too he calmly declares to us the future of the world we live in. And he tells us that one day it's going to come to an end. And there will be a rapture of the church followed by a seven-year period of tribulation. We'll be in heaven. The church will be in heaven while the earth goes through this terrible tribulation where God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Following that will be a thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth, which then will give way to a new heaven and to to a new earth. Now, Why will this earth, why will this world be laid waste just as the temple? That's a question that we need to ask. And the answer is this, because they are both built on the same things. Rebellion to God and a rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Well, as Jesus begins to tell his disciples, uh, you know, that the temple is going to be destroyed. We read there in verse three, now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, you know, they're on the Mount of Olives. They've left the Temple Mount area. They've made their way down uh, the Temple Mount, uh, down the the east side of Mount Moriah. Uh, They've walked, you know, down in the Kidron Valley and crossed the Brook Kidron. And then they walked up the other side which is the Mount of Olives. And as you go to Israel today, you know, the Mount of Olives is virtually unchanged. You know, it's solid rock. And, you know, there's this natural beaten path in the bedrock that goes up the side of the uh, Mount of Olives. And it's pretty amazing to to think about it as you walk up that path, you know, that that's the very same place that Jesus walked. You know, it hasn't changed much. And as, as you're walking that path, you know, there on the left side, there's a garden. It's all full of uh, olive trees. You know, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. And as you make your way up the Mount of Olives, as as you look back now towards the old city, you know, you just have this overwhelming, amazing view. As you look back to the old city where the temple would have been, now you see the Temple Mount and the Dome of the Rock, this incredible view that picture that you look at, that's taken from there at the Mount of Olives there near the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's as Jesus, it says that Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately telling, uh, saying to him, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And the disciples asked Jesus, basically they, they asked him three questions. What, when Lord will this be? you know, what will be, when will it be that every stone of the temple will be thrown down and not one stone will be left upon the other? You know, when will the temple be destroyed? That's the first question. And what will be the sign of your coming? And and what will be the signs of the, the end of the age? In their minds, the disciples, again, they saw the temple. If the temple would be destroyed, they equated that with the end of the world. They didn't understand that the destruction of the temple and the end of the age would be two different things. So they asked him, Lord, you know, when's this going to take place? And, and when are you going to come and set up your kingdom? You know, what's the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus, in our verses and continuing through Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus seems to largely ignore their first question uh, regarding the destruction of the temple. But he goes on to answer their other questions and, uh, you know, regarding his second coming and the end of the age. And in verse four, Jesus answered them and said, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying I am the Christ and will deceive many. So Jesus begins to talk to his disciples about the end of the age, the end times. And when, when they would know that his coming was near, And I think that what we need to notice here first, the first thing he tells his disciples, and you might want to underline it, Jesus uses the word deceive two times, right? And I think that that's significant. I think Jesus is wanting to emphasize something to us by repeating that word. He says, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And Jesus says, you know, that we would recognize that we're living in the last days by one, that many would would claim to be the Christ, and two, the fact that many would be uh, deceived. And you know, actually, I think that this is what makes Matthew 24 so interesting. uh, Because as you watch the news, you read the headlines today, you see exactly what Jesus said taking place all around us right? It's interesting times that we we, uh, are living in. It's absolutely incredible times that we're living in. According to Newsweek magazine, March 1993 issue, they reported that it was estimated that some 5,000 new religious cults had been introduced into the world in the 20th century. I mean, just think how many have been introduced to the world in the last 29 years since that publication. You know, you might ask, well, what's a cult? You know, I'm not entirely sure what, what we're talking about here. A cult is a religious group that deviates or denies historical, biblical Christianity. They, they, they deviate from it or they deny it. And more than 5,000 of these cults have been introduced into the world during the 20th century, you know. Although uh, these were not introduced in the 20th century, I want to take a look at some of the biggest cults uh, that are deceiving people today. For instance, you know, Christian scientists. You know, uh, Tina and I had the privilege. We, we you know, used to uh, attend Walter Martin's Bible study every week. And I used to love what, what, what Walter, Walter Martin said. He said, you know, Christian scientists are like grape nuts. They're neither grape nor nuts. You know, it always cracked me up, right? Well, in 1866, Christian science was founded by Mary Eddie Baker. Mary Eddie Baker claimed that her words were equivalent with the words of Christ. Mary Eddie Baker now has over 400,000 followers in the world today, right? We have a Christian science reading room right here in Truckee, if you don't know it. Christian scientists again, they're not Christian, right? They claim to represent Christ, but they're not Christian. They don't believe in the God of the Bible. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. They don't believe in sin, death, suffering, or hell. They don't believe that it's Jesus' blood that atones for uh, the sins of mankind. You know, and and again, I I don't know how they come about the title Christian scientists, because they're not Christian, they're not scientists. But there are over 400,000 followers. Take a look at Jehovah's Witness. Uh, You know, it was also founded uh, in the 19th century, right, before the 20th century. It's one of the largest cults today. It was founded in 1879 by a guy named Charles Taz Russell. The Watchtower boasts over 120,000 kingdom halls in the world today right? What started out as just literally a handful of people in Brooklyn has now grown to somewhere between one and three million followers. In a sense, the Jehovah's Witness organization claims to be the Christ, in a sense, okay? It's because they claim to be the only way to God. They claim to be the only true followers of Jehovah. And and, and, you all know that we used to live in Hungary. Before the fall of communism in 1989, there were literally just a handful of Jehovah's Witness in the nation of Hungary. Before we left Hungary in 2006, I was riding the underground, and I started a conversation with this guy, and he told me he was attending a Jehovah's Witness conference there in Budapest. And I'm like, wow, that's cool, you know, How big is that conference? 70,000 people. Since 1879 to 2006, that's how much it has grown. You know, again, Jehovah's Witness claim to represent the true Christ. But the Christ they represent is Michael, the archangel, reincarnated. You know, I know it sounds weird, but that's what they believe. They don't believe in salvation by faith through God's grace, but they believe in salvation by works, which happens to be blasphemous to what Christ accomplished there on Calvary. Another cult, huge today, Mormonism. Mormonism, right, claims to represent Christ in these last days. They even call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Unfortunately, the Christ they're representing in the world is, do you know who? Know who? What? What? the brother of Satan. Jesus Christ is the brother of Satan. That's the Christ they represent. you know uh, When I talk to a Mormon I'll, I'll, I always ask him so do you really believe that Jesus is the brother of Satan? Is that what you believe? Um, ah. And I'll ask him, so do you really believe that you're going to be a God? You're going to be a God and populate your own planet and rule over that that's Mormon doctrine. You know, they teach that every Mormon male that goes through their priesthood will one day be a God. No, Gary, you're wrong. You know, I don't believe that's what Mormons believe. It's in the rotunda at BYU, Brigham Young University. They're on the wall, 18-inch high letters. As God once was, so we are. As God has become, so we, so shall we be. It's just crazy stuff. It's crazy stuff talking about crazy stuff. Mormons, they don't like to talk about it. I like to talk about it when they come to my door. (laughs) They don't like to talk about it. Joseph Smith prophesied that people live on the sun and the moon. In regards to the moon, uh, this is what uh, he said. The inhabitants of the moon are more of a uniform size than the inhabitants of the earth. Being about six feet high in height, they dress very much like the Quaker style and are quite general in their style or the one fashion of dress. They live to be very old, coming generally near 1,000 years. And then, you know, after I share that with them, I always kind of like to kid around and just say, you know, I don't know, I'm not very smart. We haven't been to the sun, but we've been to the moon. It doesn't look like anybody lives there. And, uh, you know, maybe Joseph Smith was wrong. And I say that, that's a blasphemous Satan, uh, statement to a Mormon, right? I say that. But then I show him Deuteronomy 18 saying that if a so-called prophet prophesies anything and it fails to come to pass, then he's a false prophet and he's not to be listened to. Mormonism was founded in 1830 by Joseph Smith. Today there are over 16,500,000 16, mormons worldwide and most of them think they're christian they're not they're not christian they deviate from historical biblical christianity in the last 25 to 30 years the mormon church has tripled in size you know talk about a rise in deception in a short period of time you know another thing another religious group that's really deceiving a lot of people is is islam Islam was found in 610 A.D. The creed of every faithful Muslim, he repeats it every day. It's called the Shada, right? The Shada is this. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is prophet. In a sense, the Christ, the Savior, uh, they're presenting to the world is Muhammad. They say there is no other God, and, and his prophet is Muhammad. Muhammad. Again, Islam was founded in 610 A.D. by Muhammad after receiving visions during uh, several epileptic seizures. And after six months of meditating in a cave, uh, Muhammad felt that he had received vision from whom he thought was the angel Gabriel. The word Islam means submission. Anybody know what Muslim means? Submitter, one who submits. You're a Muslim if you submit to it. Today, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. And they're they're willing to have you submit to Islam, either willingly or by the sword. That's what they teach, right? In 1999, it was estimated that there was 1.1 billion people who were Muslim, 1999, or sorry, 1990 in 2010 1.6 billion people identified as muslims islam is the fastest growing religion in the world it's growing at twice the rate of the world's population growth right just as jesus said there would be many false ways rising up many forms of salvation being claimed many people declaring false ways many being deceived and you know you talk about many being deceived today As of March 2022, there's 7.9 billion people in the world. One quarter of them are Muslim. You know, to give you an idea how fast Islam is growing in Europe, between the years of 1980, 1985, there are 150 mosques in England. Today, there's over 1,500 mosques in England. And the goal of Islam, according to the National Islamic Society the goal in Islam, for at least in regards to America, is to have a, a mosque in every major city in America by the year 2000. Now we're 22 20 years past 2000, right? It's crazy. In uh, many schools in the Los Angeles, California, down south, many schools, they take their kids to field trips. You know where they take them? To churches? No, they don't take them to churches. They take them to mosques. So, they can learn about history. And they have former born again Christians there to tell the kids, you know, how they were led astray by the Bible until they finally came to Muhammad. Talk about, you know, there being a rise in deception. Take a look at, you know, the so called New Age movement. You know, New Age, there's nothing new about it, it's just Hinduism basically repackaged, you know, gurus sitting in a lotus position. Uh, you know, speaking words of wisdom. I mean, it's crazy. Notice it on TV when you look at commercial. If they have somebody that's sitting with their legs crossed, their fingers together, they're, they're meditating. They're, it's Buddhism or Hinduism. It's new age, right? New age. I mean, I, don't, I can't wrap my mind around it. I don't know. There's crystals and rocks with powers that change your lives, They channel spirits, people gathering together at the equinox to Mount Shasta is a big place. They do that to worship Mother Earth. You know what? All roads lead to heaven. Follow your heart. God is in everything. Man is God. Your mind creates reality. It's your experience that validates reality. You don't need Christ. You just need to tap into the Christ consciousness. You don't need Jesus Christ. Why? Because you are Christ. You know, and it's amazing how many well-known people are involved in the New Age movement. I mean, many of us remember Shirley MacLaine declaring to be God. You know, Ted Danza, George Lucas, or just a few. Oprah Winfrey, some years ago, also claimed to be God. And you know, somebody said one time, not in regards to Oprah, but it applies to Oprah, two things are certain in this world. There is a God, and you're not Him. Oprah said in a 2008 interview, she said, my mind is part of God's, and I'm very holy. My holiness is my salvation. I am my own salvation. Let me remember there is no sin. Heaven is not a location, but refers to an inner realm of consciousness. The only message of the crucifixion is that you can overcome the cross. God is a feeling experience, not a believing experience. If if God for you is still about a belief, then it's not truly God. She said that in an interview. And what's crazy, you know, I mean, you'd expect something like that maybe from Oprah, but what's crazy is how many mainline denominations today are teaching New, world, new Age philosophy. You know, you'd be surprised at the, some of the, Christian leaders of today. You know, they're teaching that you are a little Christ. You know, talk about a rise of deception and and deceiving many. You know, it's scary stuff. And Jesus said, a sign of his coming would be, many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and will deceive many. Jesus says, the end of the age will be marked with great spiritual deception and a large number of spiritual deceivers. And we're seeing his words come to pass uh, in our lifetimes. I mean, you have to close your eyes not to see the words of Jesus coming true uh, in our lifetimes, signifying his soon return. Well, in verse six, Jesus says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. you know, I tell you what, I don't think maybe I don't even need to comment on these verses today in light of current events. It's so crazy how the Lord has us in the word just at the right time. Um, well, I'm going to comment. You know, the 1900s, it was the 1900s, it was the bloodiest century in human history. Right? And the scary thing is, is we're getting better and better and better at killing each other. It would, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, you know, our current century would far and away uh, surpass the 1900s as the bloodiest century of all time. I mean, just think about the conflicts that we've been engaged in as a nation uh, in the last you know, 20 years or so since 2001, the Iran-Iraq War. Uh, well, the Iraq war, you know, the the war in Afghanistan. You think about other wars, you know, the Syrian war, you know, bloody bloody conflicts involving ISIS, you know, involving uh, the Taliban, involving al-Qaeda. You know, you think about the genocide uh, of the Uyghurs going on right now. And the genocide of Darfur, you know, it just keeps going on and on. And we've witnessed so many people being killed since the 1900s began. Two world wars, six million Jews in the Holocaust, over 100 million people killed over the last three quarters of the 20th century, um, you know, in the former Soviet Union in Cuba, uh, China, Ethiopia, when Russia invaded Afghanistan, it's estimated that they killed a, a million Afghans. And then we could just go on and on and on. Uh, 1993 War Atlas says there hasn't been a single day of peace since World War I. You know, talk about wars and rumors of war. The same 1993 War Atlas said this. It was startling for me to, to read it. 50% of all scientists 1993, 50% of all scientists are working on weapons research. Not cancer, not AIDS, not COVID. You know what? They're, they're working on weapons of war, developing them, right? And you just have to wonder, what's the percentage of scientists working on these dangerous weapons of mass destruction since 1993? The same war atlas uh, documented 40% of all money spent and the broad uh, area of science, 40% of all money spent is spent on weapons research. And it's kind of depressing to me, you know, as we go on. But, you know, I just heard this the other day on the news. Russia has 500 nuclear weapons pointed at America at any given time. And we likely have the same amount of uh, missiles aimed at them. You know, it's, it used to be called peace through mutual destruction. But if you're watching the news today, the topic of conversation is the likelihood of a nuclear war. And Russia, with their invasion of Ukraine, you know what what the danger is? One stray missile hit a NATO country, triggering Article 5. And you know what? We're all in what's being called the final war. Heard of it on the news this morning. As I'm watching Maria Bartiromo, she's talking about World War III on her episode. You know, just to give you an idea of the destruction that a nuclear weapon has, I mean, the destruction these weapons possess. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. USS Pennsylvania, it's one of our Ohio-class submarines, has 24 missiles ready for war. On each one of those 24 missiles, there are 15 nuclear warheads that can be targeted individually. That's 360 nuclear weapons, that uh, sub-houses. Each warhead has the ability to travel 10,000 miles and hit its target within 100 feet, you know, like like that's necessary with a nuclear weapon. Each of those 15 warheads on each of those 24 missiles has five times the destructive power uh, of the bomb that we dropped on Hiroshima at the end of World War II. Five times. One nuclear sub has 40 times more destructive power than all the weapons that were detonated in World War II. That's the world that we live in today. I don't think we need to talk about Iran and their desire. America wanting to get into this uh, Iran deal with uh, to allow them to develop a a nuclear weapon. To use against who? Their stated target is Israel. Wipe Israel off the face of the map. North Korea, their continued quest towards a nuclear weapon ongoing. They just uh, talked about launching a, a satellite, which is a guise to continue testing on a ICBM missile. There's a constant concern regarding Who's in control of the fissile material in the former Soviet Union? You know, who's the next con willing to sell nuclear secrets to, you know, nuclear technology or spent plutonium to some group willing to use it to develop a weapon of mass destruction? The worry of our nation is just that, that some rogue player would enter into our country and detonate a, a dirty bomb someplace in a major city. You know, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd be scared to death, you know, with the direction that our world is taking. Wars and rumors of wars, right? We don't need to, uh, you know, we'll talk more about it as we get further into the, all of that discourse. But did you know, 2013, there, were, there was approximately 9,500 nuclear warheads in the world's arsenal. As of January 2021, there's approximately 13,080, right? 38% increase in just eight years. Russia possesses the greatest number of those nuclear warheads. Approximately, we don't know for sure, somewhere between 3,750 to 4,500 nuclear weapons. As of March 3, 2020, just a few days ago, the top 10 importers of weapons in the world Four of them are Arab nations uh, in the Middle East. And just in case you wonder about Israel, where they're on that list, they're number 15. Israel's enemies are importing more weapons of war faster than she can import them. And we're seeing things lining up and playing out exactly how the Bible says it's gonna be in the last days. And we're going to see things begin to pick up speed all around us. Just as Jesus said, there'll be wars and rumors of wars, Nation rising up against nation. And interestingly enough, you want to note this phrase, kingdom of against kingdom. Kingdom against kingdom, it's a it's a reference to factions, groups within nations, non-governmental groups that are not uniform. They're, they're not tasked with protecting the sovereignty of a nation. Groups like the, the uh, Haqqani Network. Groups like Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, or uh, Hezbollah and Hamas. You know, more and more of these factions raise up every day. And Jesus says in verse 7, there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. Um, Again, we don't have to look very far to see all these things around us. Countries like Ethiopia and Somalia, at one time they were synonymous with famine and starvation. But these two countries, Ethiopia and Somalia, they're nothing. It's just a drop in the bucket uh, in regards to famine. Overall, it's estimated that there's more than 2.3 billion people alive today, roughly 30% of the global population. They lack year-round access to adequate amounts of food. Estimated 45 million people are on the brink of starvation across 43 nations. And the slightest event is going to push them over the edge. It's estimated that right now, 14 million children under the age of five years old, that's incredible to me, suffer from acute malnutrition. Around 9 million people die of hunger and hunger-related diseases every single year. And these, these statistics, they're just staggering, you know? And what makes it worse is the understanding that the world produces enough food. The world produces one and a half times enough food to feed the global population The world produces enough food to feed 10 billion people. But the cause for these famines are often you know thought to be overpopulation yeah certain regions um, you know drought of course but often it's just governmental corruption and mismanagement that doesn't allow the food to get to where it needs to go you know and that's the way that's the way things are going right? The fact is the Bible says things are going to get worse. You know, the most staggering statistic of all to me is before I finish the study this morning, 80,000 people are going to die of starvation. You know, it's a humanitarian crisis we're seeing building in in Ukraine right now. Even as we speak, you know, uh, there's going to be food shortages. Hungary has stopped exporting wheat because they anticipate food shortages for their nation. Jesus said in the last days there would be famines and that would be a sign of his coming, you know, causing us to know that his return is near. You know, he said not only famines, but pestilences. And honestly, I'll just tell you, I'm not that smart. Up until like, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, I I didn't know what a pestilence was. I thought it was it had to do with bugs. Call orcan. Get rid of the pestilences, right? But you know, I found out it's fatal diseases. Have you ever, have you heard of any recent diseases that, you know, cause widespread death in the world? You know what? Have you ever heard of SARS, sudden acute respiratory disease? SARS was responsible for less than 1,000 deaths in 2002, 2003. Have you ever heard of MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome? You can avoid that disease if you just don't drink camel urine. Uh, But MERS killed, seriously, Came about from drinking camel urine. MERS killed less than a thousand people in 2015. The Ebola outbreak 2014-2015 killed 11,000 people. Swine flu H1N1 took 200,000 lives worldwide. 2009, the first major disease that I can remember, what causing widespread death? Grids. Have you ever heard of it? Grids. Yeah. You know, you, you may know it as a different name. You may know it as AIDS. Originally, it was called GRIDS, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency Syndrome. The homosexual lobbies argued against that name, and it was changed to AIDS, Acquired Immune Deficiency. Three point, or sorry, 35.3 to 47.8 million people have died from AIDS or AIDS-related diseases since AIDS came on the scene. It's estimated 1 million people died of AIDS in 2020 alone, 1 million people. 28.2 million people uh, were accessing antiviral therapy as of June 30, 2021. Between 30.2 million and 45.1 million people globally are living with HIV in 2020. These, these are current statistics. 1.2 million people become newly infected with HIV every year. AIDS is the end stage of HIV. But all these numbers, they don't even come close to comparing to what we are experiencing now, COVID-19, right? And just over one year, COVID-19 started, 2019. Just one year, 4.8 million people worldwide have died from the sars 2 Coronavirus—it's just staggering. It's hard to comprehend that things can get worse, and yet the Bible says that things will get worse. And Jesus went on to say that there would also be earthquakes in various places. USGS—I'm trying to get fast because I know I'm already going long. USGS, United States Geological Survey, said 1976. There's interesting changes going on in the tectonic place on which the whole world sits on. These big plates are shifting in such a way that now, and remember, this is 1976, that now more earthquakes happen more frequently and with greater intensity than any other time in recorded history. Experts uh, look at these things and they say it's unparalleled in human history. The amount of earthquakes, the size of earthquakes, and the odd places these earthquakes are occurring today. Between 1890 and 1899, there was one killer earthquake, estimated to be 6.0 or greater in magnitude. Between 1900 and 1910, there were three killer earthquakes, 6.0 or greater magnitude. 1910, 1922, 1920, 1930, two, 1930, 1940, there was five. Between 1940 and 1950, there was four. 1950 1960, there was nine. 1960, 1917, there were tw- uh, 13 killer earthquakes. In 1970 to 1979, there were 51 killer earthquakes reported in the world. 1980 to 1989, there were 86 killer quakes uh, recorded on the world scene. From 1990 to 1996, there was over 100 killer quakes. Now we have to switch gears. We have to go from 6.0 or greater to 8.0 or greater. Earth Sky reported March 2012, Large earthquakes greater than 8.0 in magnitude have struck the earth at a record high rate since 2004. Between 1950 and 2000, there were 24 earthquakes that were 8.0 or greater. That's an average of one every two years. Between 19, or, sorry, 2000 and 2020, there's been an average of one or greater earthquake every year. There was seven earthquakes greater than 8.5 in the 50 years between 1950 to 2000. In the 20 years, in the last 20 years, there's been five earthquakes of 8.5 greater magnitude. Of the six largest earthquakes by magnitude, two occurred between 2000 and 2010. Four have occurred between 2011, 2020, the deadliest earthquake on record, December 6, 2004. You will remember the earthquake in Indonesia, followed by the tsunami. It was a 9.1 on the Richter scale. It killed 227,898 people, a death toll eight times higher than the average of the other 15 previous deadliest earthquakes. And Jesus said that these things, famines, pestilence, earthquakes— would be the sign of his soon return. There's a lot we can uh, go on and say, but suffice it to say we're seeing Jesus' words come to pass in our lifetimes. And you have to close your eyes not to see the things that he says coming true, signifying his soon return. In fact, the fact of the matter is you can't help but see these things happening around us. If you don't see it, it's because your head's in the sand. Jesus said, all these things are the beginning of sorrows. What's translated here, the beginning of sorrows, in the original language is the beginning of birth pangs. You know, your Bible may read birth pains. What's Jesus talking about saying that these are the beginning of birth pangs? What, what are birth pains? That's referring to labor pains. You know, we all know that when a woman goes into labor, she experiences labor pains. You know, when a, a woman goes into labor, we don't say, you know, how close are your birth pangs? You know, how far apart are your birth pains? We say, how far apart are your contractions? What, what do we know about labor pains and contractions? Well, you know what? Everyone knows that they get they get more and more intense as time goes on, and they come with a greater frequency. They're closer and closer together as a child is about to be born. When a woman goes into uh, labor, you know that there's a baby coming. As the contractions get more and more intense, that you know that the baby's coming soon. You know, Jesus is saying regarding these signs, he's comparing them to labor pains. He's, he's not saying that we've never seen these signs before in, in human history. He's not saying that, you know, they, they, these signs haven't been heavily represented before in human history. That's not what he's saying. Sometimes people hear these things and they just dismiss it. You know, these things have always been going on ever since man's been on the earth. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying that when the end draws near, they, these things will occur with greater frequency and greater intensity. You know, and there's one thing, and there's one other thing he's trying to say. I can remember when a Tina was going into labor for, with our first child, with Ashley. You know, it was so exciting. You know, we're going to have a baby. I thought she'd have a baby and we'd have a barbecue. What do I know? <laughs> That's what I thought. She was having that baby for like 24 hours, you know, but it just kept getting closer and more intense, Close. I mean, you women never will understand the suffering that us men go through during labor, I'm telling you. Right? Right? I couldn't take it. I had to take a nap. 24 hours, come on, Tina. But you know what? I don't know why people say, hey, you're supposed to boil water, you're supposed to get sheets together. You know, I don't know why they do that, but the idea is you're supposed to get ready. For the miracle of birth, maybe to keep the husbands awake, I don't know. But in a similar way, we're to be getting ready as we see these things starting to increase in frequency and intensity because the kingdom of heaven is about to be birthed and we're going to see our Savior's face, guess what, very, very soon. Jesus said in Luke 21:28. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh. When you see these things, you know the kingdom of heaven is coming. I believe, looking at all these things taking place in the world, you know we're seeing them pick up speed, greater intensity, greater frequency. I believe that Jesus' return is on the very near horizon. I do. It's right around the corner. And as his church, not just Calvary Chapel, not some specific denomination, but His people around the world who are truly believers, those of us that are truly part of His body, you know what? We're going to get caught up into the air to meet the Lord uh, there. Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 18. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The day is coming. It's right around the corner. We're going to see our Savior's face very soon, and we're to be comforted by this. Jesus said what? He said, John 14, one through four, you believe in God, believe also in me. Believe the things that I'm saying to you. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. It's just incredible times we're living in. It's incredible times. The prophecies of Matthew 24, they're making the headlines. Every news station is reporting them today. They don't don't realize it. They're verifying the Bible. And you know what? As believers, we want to get ready. For us as believers today, Jesus says, see that you're not troubled. These things aren't to be troubling. We're not to be alarmed. But as I already mentioned, these things, when they happen, we're to look up. Because our redemption draws nigh. Our redemption draws very, very near. You know, one day, very soon, I believe, we're going to hear that trump of God. We're going to hear the voice of the Lord saying, come up here, and we're going to meet the Lord in heaven, and he's going to take us to heaven to be with him forever. You know what? So as believers, we're not to be troubled. Jesus is coming for his bride very soon. But you know what? This is the troubling thing. And this is the sobering thing. And I know I've gone long, and thanks for your patience. We're going to wrap it up real quick. But this is the troubling thing. If you're not a believer that's walking strong with the Lord, if you would be what one that Jesus would refer to as a lukewarm believer, you know, can I lovingly ask you, what's it going to take to wake you up? What's it going to take? You know What? Today, making a commitment to Jesus Christ is the easiest day to make it. Tomorrow will be just that much harder. It'll be one more day of a hardened heart that you have to deal with. You know, it's interesting to me that Jesus starts out with the the sign that will signify his return is spiritual deception. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're watching online and you're not a Christian, you're here, you're not a Christian, you should be asking yourself, Why? Why does Jesus start out with spiritual deception as a sign of his return instead of starting out with the wars, the famines, and the earthquakes, right? The pestilences. Why do you think he does that? I think the answer is this. As terrible as war is, and it is very terrible, war displays the inhumanity of man on a much larger scale than anything else in the world can. But as terrible as war is, as terrible as famine, pestilence, and earthquakes are, spiritual deception is eternal. The consequences of war, famine, pestilences, and earthquakes, you know, it just lasts this present age. It's just a temporal thing. But the consequences of falling prey to spiritual deception, it lasts forever. Spiritual deception will outlive this life and determine where a person will spend eternity. You know, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if you're watching online, you're here, you don't know the Lord, you know, it's very important not to allow yourself to be deceived you know if you're if you're a lukewarm christian i fear that that you're vulnerable to deception also and you can't allow yourself to be deceived as you witness the destabilization destabilization of the world around us and that's what happens right when the world starts falling apart people look to spiritual leaders to lead them out and they're just looking for anyone with answers that are that that they can listen to People with answers that they can say, just say them with authority, with conviction, and confidence. And Jesus said, John 13, 19, now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you'll believe that I am he. Jesus tells us what's coming. You know, he tells us what to expect so that when we see these things coming to pass, like today, that we'll believe that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the only savior of the world. It's only God who tells us the end from the beginning. We're seeing these, his words come to pass in our lifetime. You have to be, you know, blind. You have to close your eyes to see Jesus' words not coming true, signifying his soon return. You know what? We're seeing the world going down this path that Jesus spoke of. And we're seeing the world destabilizing spiritually, politically, economically. And Jesus says it's just going to continue to get worse. You know, if you're not a Christian today, you're watching online, you're not a believer. I just ask you, what's it going to take for you to turn to Jesus? What's it going to take for you to repent of your sins, to ask him to come into your life to forgive your sins? What's it going to take for you to just willingly receive a free gift of salvation? Allow him to gather you together as a hen would gather his, her chicks under his wings. What's it going to take, you know? What's it going to take before you realize that this world is coming to an end, that it's crashing down all around us? You know, the wonderful thing about Jesus, do you know the wonderful thing about Jesus? <laughs> Jesus is a wonderful thing. You know what? He's willing to wait. He's patient. I'm so thankful that he's willing to wait, that he's patient to wait for us when, we, when we've been knuckleheads for so long. Wait a minute, Gary, you calling me a knucklehead? Maybe. Huh. <laughs> I was a knucklehead for a long time. You know, it takes one to no one. Spiritual deception is to be feared more than wars, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Sadly, though, despite Jesus' warning, many will be deceived. And it's just so tragic because God offers a way of escape from the judgment to come through Jesus Christ. You know, if you've never given your heart to the Lord, all you need to do is just say, Lord, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you took my place, that you shed your blood as a sacrifice, that you died, you were buried, you were resurrected the third day. Would you forgive me of my sins, Lord? Come into my life. Give me the power to live for you And the Bible says, when you do that, you'll be born again and your sins will be washed away. You'll be a new creation. And you'll have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that day very soon, when we hear that trumpet, we hear the voice of God say, come up here, you'll be included in that number. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you very much for your word. And Lord, I thank you for the patience of my brothers and sisters that have listened for so very long. But Lord, I pray that your spirit would impact our hearts. Lord, that these these words wouldn't fall on deaf ears. That we would see the things going on. We're seeing them play out in Ukraine now. We're seeing them play out with China in, in a potential attack on Taiwan. We're seeing Iran wanting a nuclear weapon. We're seeing just all kinds of conflicts every place. Earthquakes, pestilence, famine, every place signifying your soon return, Lord. I pray you'd move on the hearts of your people. Those that don't know you, that they would pray, receive you as their savior. Those that are just floundering, lukewarm, God, that there would be a commitment made. And for those of us that are running the race well, Lord, that we would continue to look to how we could serve you, reach out to people in this desperate, desperate time, Lord. Move on our hearts as a church. We ask it in your name. Amen.